Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Success in Sales, Hacks and Chats with Mike McDonald. And I have a very special guest, we have Kim, Kim, Kim Fist joining me today. Hey Kim, thanks for being a guest on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you, getting to know you and hopefully your listeners. So Kim is a very well sought after speaker. She's an author. She is a life coach. She's a seven figure earner and a thought leader. She's the author of the book, The Monster Under the Bed. So I think we're going to dive into how the monster shows up, I think, Kim. So before we do that, I'd be curious to know a little bit more about yourself. So would you share with us a bit about your background and how you got into what you do now? Yep. I would love it. Let me just give the subtitle, though, because I think listeners might go, oh, she wrote a children's book. Um, (laughs) No. So let me just finish that for you because it's the monster under the bed uncovering the lie that drives us. And so that kind of gives a different connotation to what the book's going to be about. And we, of course, we're going to discuss a lot of principles on this, on this call. So um, my background is uh, basically I've worked in people businesses, whether it be, um, well, I got married really young, grew up uh, in a church situation, very, very musical family. I've been performing on stage all my life, I can't remember ever not singing, playing the piano. My family was all on stage singing, play, like we were the Osmond family or whatever, you know, like we were, we were just a singing family and still right. are. But cool. um, got married young. Uh, I would call it monster driven and you have to kind of know what that means <laughs> from the book. But, um, but then I've always, I didn't know what this was called, but I felt this either need to not be controlled, which meant an employee <laughs> I don't want to yeah. be one of those. Um, yeah. And I felt this call as I started my late 20s. I started getting into relationship marketing, network marketing. And I understood, like, I started going, wow, you mean I can really create my own, I can decide my worth, um, my, I can create stuff from nothing? That always excited me. I can take just an idea and, and then create it for reals outwardly yep. and that was that was a high you know that feeling it's yeah, like yeah. A, wow this is awesome <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I, back, I'm older than you so I remember the the tv show bewitched you know and I used to practice twinkling my nose when I was little trying to get things to do stuff that I wanted it to do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh this was like my my adult magic being an yep. entrepreneur, you feel this, this like love of creation. And so um, anyway, so, you know, had some kids, family relationships, family dynamics were all part of my playground of learning what I'm referring to now as my monster principles. Uh, I did build, I've built several network marketing businesses. And that just basically is the, um, I call it a personal development university because, because you are in charge of what you create. It's leadership development. You are people attraction business. How, you know, you've got to overcome the demons and the monsters inside you in order to have other people want to follow you. And, and you can mentor those that want what you have, but you've got to have something they don't. <laughs> so you have to grow. And uh, so that's kind of where I've, you know, spent the last, um, gosh, 30 years. And off and on, wow. I've also done a lot of music directing, theater directing. I'm a passionate person that just loves life. And so um, 
but I've been in the ditches of life a lot. So I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, so that's kind of the overview. I do have, I'm married now for, it's coming up Sunday. Well, I don't know when this is going to be recorded, but uh, middle of November, I have 32 years married and I am, have four children, five grandchildren, and I got started when I was like 10. So I'm very young wow. still. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, there's, there's a whole other side to you with the music thing and the directing that just, I think we need to do like four or five podcasts to really dive into that. Oh, yeah. Oh, but, my uh, God. <laughs> I, th- I think it's probably worth diving into these principles because people listening are probably resonating with the idea of you want to get out of your own way in order to really move forward. So one of the things that stands out for me at least is until you can do that you're always going to go through these cycles where you keep hitting roadblocks over and over again and although they show up differently slightly they could always have rooted in the the same roadblock that until you get rid of it it's always going to keep showing up so from the the chat that we had before we click record You've got 10 monster principles, which are, in a nutshell, the 10 different ways that the the monster under the bed or the monster inside of us, so to speak, shows up. And you've got a couple of key ones or key things that tend to show up the most. So what would the first one be? Well, let me, can I back up just a little bit and lay more of the monster premise? Because it involves some... um, brain science actually that might be helpful to understand uh what this monster is where it came from and and um and what triggers it today and so let me just back up and kind of lay that premise um go for it okay when we're what we're doing right now what you're listening to this with what you're pretty much what you think, how you think and what you're learning and logically processing life is, is with your prefrontal cortex brain. It's the neocortex. It's the thing that develops fully, not until mid-20s, by the way. That part of our brain, and that's what, what might explain if you have teenagers right now. You might go, whoa, what? how come you're not? Come on. <laughs> Their brain's not fully, function, fully developed, that logical reasoning brain. And so the brain that is fully formed and on the ready and ready to help us uh, is called our survival brain or the limbic brain or the amygdala. In the book, I call it the amygdala. In fact, I name it Amy because it's easier to spell. And so, (laughs) um, but that brain without language, without reasoning, without uh, logic, it's all about keeping us alive because that's its job. That's what it's been doing for millennia and that's its role uh, that when, and we come prepackaged with it we don't we didn't know that because it's so far removed from our logical brain and um but it's it's really how and it's just my metaphor okay so it doesn't have to, i don't have to be right about it just hold it like maybe a fairy tale or a just an uh, allegory but think about it like this when you're when you're little firstborn, you're growing, that survival brain has already running programs. We are a community-based people. We don't, we're a species that doesn't make it alone. We need our community. We need our tribe. We need our family. They have to take care of us in the early years. We're not like the deer that get born and they nurse for a little bit and then they're pretty much on their own or an elephant or a giraffe. We need our, our, uh, our community. And so 
that's running this question that's always running emotionally in our little self was, am I okay? Am I okay? How am I now? How about you? How about now? How about now? Am I okay? Because an okay is just my word for it, but it's a feeling. Will I be acceptable? Will I be taken care of? Can I live? That's the bottom line survival brain question. Are you going to be, are these people going to take care of you? So the little self without any logic running at all. In fact, right now, if you're thinking about this, Think about a little baby, maybe yours, maybe you, if you, most people can't think of themselves at that age, but think of your, if you have a child like two years old or younger, what, what would ever make them not okay or good enough or perfect or worthy or lovable, right? Like from the outside looking in, you'd go, well, nothing. Even if they had colic, I'd still want them to be here. (laughs) Even if they cried a lot, pooped a lot and whatever, (laughs) I'd still want them here, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's, that's, but they don't know that because they're questioning emotionally that is processing who they are as a, as an entity is, am I okay? Am I okay? And without a logical brain, all it would take is your mom, maybe at two years old, you were going to go grab the fireplace, you know, and she slapped your hand. No, no, pulled you away, grabbed you away. Well, you had no idea what she was saying with her mouth. You had no idea that she loved you with all of her heart. You just felt the emotional, I'm not okay, something's wrong. Danger, danger, Will Robinson, something's wrong. And it's me. Little kids are also the packaged brain we came with is also on alert for anything having to do with us. And we still are that way, actually, Michael. Like without investigation, our survival brain still runs us that everything that happens around us is because is happening to us, number one. And a little kid processes is that it happens because of them, because of us. Because again, that's part of the survival instinct. And so like little kids of divorce, like my story goes back when I was four, my mom and dad got divorced. And as an adult, I have processed that, that my dad left my mom, right? And he got married on the day of their divorce to someone else. So right. as, an, as an adult, I knew my dad left my mom for another woman. And I, we talked about it, you know, as I grew up with my dad and I love my dad. He was a great dad. But guess what I didn't realize is that little Kimmy processed that he left her, me, for another woman. He didn't leave my mom. My mom had nothing to do with it to little Kimmy. That'd be dumb. That would take a logical brain I didn't have access to. It was all about me and because of me. So the lie under the bed, and I'm saying lie and monster synonymously, and mm-hmm. that is that we made an emotional, and when I say the word decision, that sounds like logic, and it's not. It's an emotional uh, belief that says we're not okay, and watch out, because you better make sure you, so there's two messages here, and your amygdala brain, Amy, only has a few messages that when the survival brain gets impacted, like, "Uh uh-oh, something could be wrong, I believe the first thing we felt when we were little was shame. Was we're, I think it's flight first. I think flight came first and then fight. You know how the messages from the amygdala say fight or flight? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it happened the other way around. I don't have to be right, but I think it fits my story better and it fits what I've seen happen in myself and others. Um, we go, uh-oh, uh-oh, something's wrong. We better go hide and not let them see it. Number one, hope nobody else finds out, which is... Number one monster track is shame. 
the number one, what you talked about, like your, the monster tracks, the number one, I believe yeah. that we felt was shame. And, uh, and that's a function of flight. Like I'm going to go hide. I don't want them to see, but on its heels is the other message of fight because you have to be okay. Remember, this is all emotionally processed. There's no language here at all. There's no logic. And so the feeling was, um, when, I w when I had that feeling like I'm not okay, um, and I, but I better be, I looked around at my family, which was all musical. Like everybody played instruments, everybody sang. So guess what I did? I don't remember making this decision because this wasn't made in the logical decision-making part of my brain. This was made in my emotional driven brain. So I went, well, I better do that what they're doing because they value that and then I'll be accepted here. And so I took piano lessons. And of course, my mom made me take piano like it all fit together. Everybody's, you know, uh, it all fit. And some yeah. of you might be thinking the same thing like, well, what was valued in my family? Well, maybe it was academics. Maybe it was sports. Maybe it was um, going into the military or uh, medical, you know, like I know families of generations of doctors, because that's what we do. Um, anyway, so that was a fight message that was based on what I believe was an inaccurate emotional decision to begin with of I'm not okay. So I'm going to come up for air a minute and you can ask me a question <laughs> about that kind of premise I've just laid. Yeah, one of the, the things that I guess stuck out for me was it's not about the, the result, so to speak, or the, the outcome or the, the actual thought that we get. It's more about how we get there. So when we are adults, you know, like past 25, our, our brain's at a point where how we get to the answer can be more logical, can be more rational, can be more thought out. But when we're younger, before that point anyway, emotion tends to rule over, which I know it, it probably does get to a different outcome or maybe it's a bit more intense or maybe it's a bit more survival driven. But a lot of people can still, you can still process things emotionally when we are older. But one of the things that stands out at least is it's about how we get to the outcome. How do we get to the decision? Or how do we get to the, the feeling or the thought that we have, which then changes how we act, right? So, Yes, but it, let, me ask, let me throw this one in there because you bring up a really good point. The reason I want people to understand this premise is because over the thousands of people that I've coached, mentored, and trained, no matter how outwardly successful someone is at all, no matter how rich they are, successful in their business, skinny. I've been in health and weight loss, uh, health and weight loss business now for 12 years. No matter how skinny they get, no matter how beautiful they get, no matter how smart, how many degrees after their name, it doesn't matter. Everyone I've ever worked with, well, I, I won't say everyone, there might be a handful that haven't really understood what I've been talking about because I don't feel it applies to them, but it's a very minuscule percentage. Um, the other people have this still, this nagging, nagging feeling that I'm not okay. I'm not good enough. I need to make more money. I need to be smarter. I don't want anyone to know that I'm not smart. So I kind of keep having to go get, prove it, prove it. So the premise of this is so important to understand because I believe today people still are hijacked by their three-year-old the survive well because honestly in the brain science world the neuropathways of thought 
and emotion that have developed and created our entire identity started at three. And we still are, I believe most people still make emotional decisions today, whether they're logical or not, but then they use their logical brain to justify and rationalize what their emotional brain decided. And I've said, I've said this to men and women, men have a little harder time with that because they feel so they pride themselves in their logical brain, right? Like, Oh, no, no, no. I'm very logical. I'm very analytical. But I have a son that's like this. And he's an attorney. And he is an arguer, too. So he just will argue with me, but he gets really passionate in defending his position that he's not emotional. Because, you know, I'm like, okay, I see that. (laughs) I see how unemotional you are about how emotional you aren't yeah yeah I was just about to say that (laughs) yeah it's really funny but um but here's the thing that there's a the tendency for us to do which is monster track number two and actually even since the book has come out I've kind of had even a new um, awareness of how these kind of play I continue I I say in the foreword of the book I say I give myself lots of room to evolve this understanding because It already took me two years to write the book because I kept, by the time I got to the end of the book, I gained a little deeper, like the onion had been peeled a little bit more. And I'm like, oh, oh, I see how that is. Okay, I got to go back to the beginning. I didn't quite say that right back there. So it was a process of going back because I kept unpeeling it. And then finally, everyone in my world said, be done with it, Kim, be done. So I just am done. But since the book, (laughs) since the book, Um, these two things go hand in hand, judgment and shame. Because, uh, and when I talk about the other monster tracks that we might discuss on the show right now, um, and what I believe happened when we were little, we continue to beat ourselves up, which causes us to keep that shame judgment loop going. So, oh, I suck. Oh, because look at, I didn't do that well. I'm going to hide. I hope no one sees it. And then we think they, then someone pushes our button, which is a monster track. And then we go, oh crap, they're finding out. So then we go judgment. Oh, I suck. And I'm not good enough. And then I go back into shame. It's a vicious cycle that keeps people, like, let's just speak to the entrepreneur right now. The entrepreneur struggles with, because I've seen it all my life and myself primarily over the years. And then I've seen it, of course, in everyone I've, I've coached. But it shows up differently. Like the configuration is almost like um, a fingerprint or a thumbprint. You know how everyone's different, mm-hmm. but we all have fingerprints and thumbprints. But how yeah. it how it plays out, like even in siblings. Michael, do you have a sibling? I do. Yes. And uh, and do you have more than one? I just have the one. Older or younger? He's younger. Okay. So you how how much age difference? Uh, you put me on the spot now I think there's I think there's eight eight years yeah oh so you're almost like only children at that point again Um, but I mean you know what I mean there's such an age difference that he got a lot of time or you got a lot of time alone and then he came or he is it a he it is yeah yeah so but the sibling relationship has a lot to do with our monster creation and the lie about ourselves, whether you're the older one or the younger one, but how it plays out even in siblings is so different. One will process it this way. One, you know, one processes it another way. Plus there's some inherent personality differences, I believe that show up as well. Um, but my point is, is that when we're monster driven, when the lie is 
um, when we're functioning under I'm not okay, which is the biggest lie there was. That's the lie. It's the one monster. I'm not okay. I'm not good enough, not worthy enough, not perfect, not smart, whatever that little configuration is. Mine was I'm not special. Because my dad, if I had been more special, Michael, my dad wouldn't have left me, right? I, the lie was that I was only average, which therefore made me not okay enough, which made me, which make the fight message came and said, you better be, the word for me, my silver bullet word was special. So uh, I can look back in my life and go, the things that pushed my buttons, the things that made me like crazy, is if I ever thought someone thought of me as average um, or, and then I had to just develop. So, so of course I'm singing and playing the piano and public speaking and becoming the top in all of my industries and building a seven figure business. Of course that would be me because I have to be in those certain areas though. Not every area of my life am I, did I have to be special? You know, it just made no logical sense. But in those areas I had to be special and I couldn't be special enough that is the point of the whole work is understanding when you're being driven by the lie, the monster, the phrase I say in the book is you can never get enough of what you never needed to begin with. Mm, I like that. You can never get enough of what you never needed to begin with. So it, keep, it kept me craving, always craving, craving more and more because guess what I always found? at least in my perception, of course, which I'm always going to find the people that are more special than me. They kept showing up everywhere around me, triggering me anew to go, go back into fight mode to prove I am the most special. It made no logical sense. And I left a lot of damage and ruined relationships and in my health and everything. It was damaging everywhere because it was, it was never true to begin with, and I didn't know it. So I could never get there, to that place of happiness or satisfaction. And that's the key, I think, with entrepreneurs, is I believe, I had a, a successful businesswoman tell me once when we were working through some of this stuff, and she said, Kim, I don't want to defang my monster. I don't even want to go look. I want to keep my monster right where it is. And I go, okay, well, why? Why? And she goes, because if I didn't have it, I would be a 300-pound, bonbon-eating, daytime reality TV show watching lazy slob. <laughs> yeah, that was her. She felt like that was the driving catalyst to succeed in her business. Mm -hmm. And the fear of that, not having a successful business, not and whether it was what was at the root of all that, like maybe it was, I know for her, it was some scarcity mindset, like she was worried about money. But mm -hmm. when, when you're in scarcity mindset, you can never have enough money. It won't matter what your bank account says, because there can always be a what if bigger than the what is now, right? Like, yeah, you can always imagine something more horrible happening because that's again you can't get enough of what you never needed you never needed to you, you were never threatened with your life in reality but in your in your survival little brain mind as a child that's what was wired in there so the whole point of the book is to and well going back to this woman what was happening in her life in reality was she was burning through she couldn't find a relationship she could stay in um 
And so then she was lonely, right? She couldn't, and her health was deteriorating. She had to take sleeping pills. She had to take anxiety medication. Um, she was starting to get stomach problems, you know, like it was affecting her life. And she was, this is where I find a lot of entrepreneurs fall, is they have so much proving energy, which makes them produce. It's very effective. Don't get me wrong. It's very effective. And there's a lie that's driving it that will never be satisfied. So, um, but I have some solutions for that, but I'll, again, come up for air and let you talk about it. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's interesting when, when you sort of match the, the three-year-old self and then how that links to the future self. Because when, well, when you were saying that, one of my first sort of questions that sprung to my mind was, oh, so without, you know, risking, you know, you've probably already done the work on yourself already, but perhaps you needed to feel special when you were three year old, when you were three year old, otherwise, you know, potentially the relationship stuff wouldn't have happened. Like if you were special, then, you know, that life might've turned out differently. So that's what you try and fulfill now when, you know, you are able to fulfill that now, which is probably great. But then as you say, you never get enough of what you never needed. So you never needed to feel special. You never needed to feel important in the first place which means no matter how important no matter how special you actually become it's never going to be enough because you never needed it to begin with and one of the right. things that um that did that did actually spring to my mind as well was when you said the what if bigger than the what is i think that that links somewhat to the survival side of things like you can only you can only pretend that you know that, that, that there's no lion there once Right, like you can't you you can't turn around and go, oh, there's no lion there when there is. You you can't really mm -hmm. pretend that any more than once because you know the lion's going to get you. You know, so mm -hmm. we, need, we need to focus on the lion. Otherwise, you know, anything that looks like a lion, anything that sounds like a lion, anything that's the shape of a lion, even if it's not there, because we can't it's in pretend. Your head. Yeah, it's already we, there. Yeah, we can't we can't pretend otherwise, right? We can't pretend there's nothing there when it could very well be there. Mm -hmm. So. When, when that sort of all links together, it's almost like we've created this, uh, this world, if you will, inside our own heads. And one of the things that uh, made me chuckle, by the way, I had to turn the, the mic off, actually, because it was uh, mid-laugh, was when you said that a lot of our logic is after the experience. So it's all happening to us, and we're basically saying how logical everything was after the fact so we're kind of experiencing it predicting it creating it and going oh it all it all worked out in the end see look how, look how logical that was but in the moment it was probably an emotional decision to begin with that probably happened like way before you actually made the air quotes decision Mm -hmm. and you're kind of rationalizing it afterwards and yep. making yourself generally making yourself sound really smart uh, <laughs> yep. so so what was the the next one so we will probably want to cover like one of the more the more common ones now so we've gone shame we've gone judgment which i think that cycle tends to be more internal i think the more we judge ourselves more than other people judge us that that, that cycle is going to get worse no matter what like if someone says how amazing you are or how special you are, or how important you are, or how fabulous that you are, right? Or how successful that you are. I mean, look at all this money you've got. Look how many people you're able to impact. Mm -hmm. And inside, you're judging yourself more harshly 
than other people judge you, which I think is a very common trait amongst a lot of people these days. That causes shame then because you start to judge the judgment. You start to feel negative about the judgment at that point, which I, I guess is where the shame comes in. Well, it's like there's this thing that's new in the world. It's new to me. I said this, I did an event here in Las Vegas a couple of days ago and I was interacting with the audience and I said, um, how many of you have heard of this thing called, this new thing, I said, this new term that's called imposter syndrome. And a lady in the audience, and I think she's, I don't know if she's a therapist or a counselor or something, she goes, that's not new. Well, I'd never heard it. I'm very well read and I don't have any big degrees after my name, but I said, it's new to me, and somebody had just brought it up a few months ago, maybe a year ago now, but it was a new term, and it was when I was writing the book, and I even address it a little bit in the book, like there's this thing called imposter syndrome, and I had, and, and that, that's just another term for flight and shame, because the imposter syndrome, the chatter, and I call chatter what... Um, how the monster speaks, or basically our stream of thought. And actually, it can be positive chatter, but I, in the book, I just kind of refer to it as, as the negative chatter because 90% of our thoughts are repeated every day, day after day after day after day, same thought, the same thought, same thoughts, and 80-something percent of those are negative. So right now, on default mode, everybody's the stream of thought for everybody is a negative, is a tendency to the negative based on the survival brain, what you just said. We've got to just, it, sur, survival brain is all about you. It, it, it reads your emotion, basically. It reads whatever you feel, and it says your wish is my command. It believes what you feel. It has still no connection to logic. You cannot logically talk yourself out of um, getting scared, your fear of flight, your fear of heights, your fear of flying. You can't logically only. Now, does it play a part? Will it be helpful in the overall plan for maybe a solution for, for rewiring? That's what I call it, rewiring the survival brain. Absolutely. I'm not saying that anything you learn in your logical brain is useless, but you can't, it's not going to do it alone. This process is not done cerebrally. There's something, I'm going to jump again, but come, bring me back to one of these other things I've mentioned because I really want to bring up this too. Okay. And that is Hebb's law says yep. what fires together, wires together. Yep. Um, and that's about the brain or just about the body and the brain and everything like neurons that fire together, wire together. Well, yep. my assertion, again, as part of my metaphor, or my belief, it doesn't have to be right, but what fits the analogy for me because Heb doesn't uh, tell you what makes something fire. I believe the thing that causes the firing initially is emotion. Emotion is the firing uh, trigger. When something with intense emotion happens to you, that causes firing. Emotion causes firing and repetition causes the wiring. So, um, that's just repetition wiring is true. That's what like occupational therapists to like stroke victims, they retrain your, the neuroplasticity of your brain to how to actually grow new brain stuff is repetition wiring, yeah. you know, but the firing I believe happens with emo. It, it might happen another way too, but emotional, like you can go hear a song right now. I don't even know how old you are, but you could go hear a song <laughs> that, that happened during an emotional time of your life, high school, you were in love, yeah blah, 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 you had a parent die, somebody died in your life, something that was very emotional, good at or bad, like it's not a bad necessarily thing, but it's emotional, that song plays again, or you get a smell of something, I've had people say, oh my gosh, that smells like, 
you know, uh, my grandma who I loved or that fresh break bed. Like it's an emotional sensory experience. And that why you have it right now back in your memory is because it was fired and wired. So what well, one of the wire, you're not even going to bring them back. Yeah. It is, it is pretty crazy when you think about it that way. Um, I, th I actually think the sound cut out, which is why I thought you were pausing as opposed to keeping on going. But yeah, I'll have to apologise for that, Kim. Uh, so one of the, the oh, things oh, that... Oh, no, don't. Jump in. <laughs> well, one of the things that I do sort of recognise, at least, is, you know, when people have, like, traumatic experiences or people remember the first time they fell in love and all those things, is mm -hmm. tends to be the... It only needs to happen once is kind of where I'm going with this. So <clears throat> once you've had a traumatic experience, that stays with you. And you've only had it happen the once. And the first time you fell in love, you know, it, it was, you know, great and not so great. And you did genuinely, does actually feel like you're falling, which is a strange feeling to have. But um, that, that stays with you as well. So, well, and, and, and again, that, that might, may or may not only happen the once as well. So I feel that the emotional side of things is probably true. It's probably something that I think is, is becoming more and more well known now. So back to what well, you were saying before. Yeah, well, because you, thank you. And you brought up a really good point that I didn't mention in my premise, which is another part of our brain, the reticular activating system. Yeah. In the book, I call it mental bloodhounds. Because... Right. Things don't just happen the once, by the way. When something traumatic happens in general, um, it actually fires, it fires the neurons together. And that you can actually watch your brain fire. Like now they have like fMRI scans where you actually can see brain waves that when a new idea hits the brain uh, with emotion, you can see brain synapses go Whoo! like they, Whoo! they light up. It's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but to the degree that it was emotional and intense, your subconscious mind does not know the difference between uh, something that really, really, really happened and or a vividly remembered or vividly perceived um, thought that includes all of the, all of the uh, sensories. So, your subconscious doesn't know that it didn't just happen again when you replay it, when you replay it, you replay it, you replay it with all the accompanying emotions of shame. And um, it doesn't know that it didn't just happen again. So to it, that is how it's being wired. It is wired because of all this intense emotion that keeps getting thought about and thought about and thought about. And it just thinks it's happened again and again and again. And then your mental bloodhounds. So here's the other thing I wanted to bring up about that. Sorry, I'm talking fast. And this is new information. So I know some people are, might be going, what the heck it's is this right, talking for it. about? Keep going, okay. keep going. Okay. <laughs> when you make an emotional, so um, the, the purpose of your brain's reticular system, one of the purposes, it might have more, but one of them is to filter out. It's kind of like the gatekeeper that, that decides what's going to get your conscious attention or not. Because like right now in the room I'm in, I've got lights, I've got air conditionings, I've got airplanes flying, I've got cars, I've got my husband sneezing across the room. Like I've got all kinds of noises and data and stimulus happening around me. I got a fly at the window. You know what I mean? So yeah. your brain, the reticular, the mental bloodhound's job is to say, Hmm. Number one, it has some instinctual conditioning. Like you need to know where food is. You need to know where water is because that's how you live. So when you're a baby, you're crying. 
you know, you, you go, oh, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. You've got to know that you're hungry and you've got you to gotta pay attention to that. But then there's a lot of conditioned responses that we've given this part of our brain through our emotion. And its job is not to question it. It doesn't say, oh, honey, no, no, no. Like when we're, we're whatever age we were, when we really had this lie that we're not okay hit and it got embedded in us, we gave the message to our bloodhounds. Hey, guys, I'm not okay. I'm not worthy. I'm not perfect. I'm not lovable. Got it? I'm, and because let's feel the emotion I feel. This was all done without any language. It's all emotion. And the bloodhounds went, yeah, got it. They took a big sniff of it and said, got it. That's why I use the term bloodhounds. Guess what they do the rest of your life? They only let the data in. They're just showing you how you are right because you told it the truth. You told it what was true through your emotion. So look at when I work with people now, Michael, and, I, and I'll go, you guys, this was never true to begin with. Nuh-uh, Kim, look, this and this and this and this. And they can take me all the way back through their life and show me how they suck and they're not good enough and da-da-da. And I'll go, yeah, the bloodhounds did a great job. What you never noticed was all the times you didn't suck, all the times you did, you were okay, all the times you don't notice that because you didn't tell your bloodhounds that was true emotionally. You might have tried to tell it through affirmations. I'm, I am loved. I am worthy. I am good. I am perfect. I am wealthy. I make a lot of money. I am successful. But that's a cerebral process. That's not emotional. In fact, the more sometimes, and I'm not anti-affirmations, don't hear it that way, but sometimes when we do these affirmations or visualizations, it's actually the deeper part of us that's going, uh-huh, imposter, they're going to find out, they're going to find out, don't even think that's going to work, because you know what happened last time you did that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you got yeah. some counter messages emotionally running underneath that, that's counteracting possibly any good you're doing outwardly, because you're not, but here's the key. The key is understanding the programming that you're hijacked by right now in our adult adult lives if you're hijacked by that emotion and those thoughts and they run hand in hand then understanding how it happened that it oh you mean it's not true you think it's true because you have heard it and believed it and it's created your identity for the good bad and the ugly that's who you are today is a as a you're a product of flight and fight that the little whatever age two-year-old Create, started or even younger started in you, but you now with the analytical brain, you don't understand that wiring. It doesn't make any sense. So that's why you're caught in this conundrum of, I don't know why I feel this way and I can't make enough money and be skinny enough and beautiful enough and smart enough to offset that voice. So understanding where it comes from. Another monster track, by the way, Oh, no, 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 going back. So mental bloodhounds were the, were the cause of why we didn't outgrow that. Like we did Santa Claus, you know, like we don't believe in Santa as a rule anymore. Why did we outgrow that? And we didn't outgrow this lie that we believed about ourselves. Um, it's because the evidence kept coming in and coming in and kept coming in. And we kept developing our skills, by the way, just because I might not be monster driven right now to prove I'm special. And I'm always on guard for it, though, by the way. It's never going to, it's not something that you conquer or you get over or you fight. The more you fight it, the stronger it gets. That's why you can't really even fight fear. Fighting fear is an oxymoron that's not going to work. 
fighting fear is the same energy and it will actually strengthen the fear trying to get all worked up and fight it long term you might overcome it a minute here and there but you can't use fighting energy because fear is a fighting energy to begin with so the the whole point of what i'm doing is to show you what is that feeling coming from that does produce fear feelings fear is innate in our wiring it was important for survival now with our logical brain we can go investigate we could go lift up what I call run to the roar, lift up that bedspread and go, where's that? Is there really a monster there? And the fear of it is much greater than the reality. Once we get there, we go, oh, oh, there was nothing there. to be. I was loved. I was perfect. I was worthy. I was smart. There was nothing I really needed to do, but I didn't know that at two years old and three years old. So I need to go love love that little two or three-year-old child, that little me, that's who's under the bed is our little selves who are just scared. Does that make sense? It does. And there is something that I'd like to ask and I'm going to sort of give you a chance to, to compel yourself or to, you know, just maybe have a think about it because okay. it's something that uh, has came up and I don't know if there is an answer. So I'm just going to dive in and okay. we'll see how it rock and rolls and how do because you said that deep down we can have this <clears throat> this emotional voice if you will that would it would probably you know override or be in the background of this logical side of things so whether it be the imposter syndrome or the fraud or the, you know, you convince yourself that you're, you know, you're wealthy or you're happy or you're smart or you're special or you're important. But deep down, there's a voice saying, you're lying to yourself. You know I mean? Every time you say mm -hmm. this, you go out and do something different. So how can it possibly be true? And one of the things that I'd like to ask is how do we have, how do we have an emotional conversation that actually benefits us? And allows us to change rather than trying to stick to like logic and evidence mm -hmm. and things that don't work long term. And we say that emotion is what helps these firings and wirings and everything else. So how do we have the emotion conversation as opposed mm -hmm. to the logical conversation? And how do we make it actually help us as opposed to hinder us? Mm -hmm. So that, that's totally exactly the last part of my book is actually rewiring. It's actually talking about how to, some strategies, and honestly, Michael, the more I'm into this work, I leave lots of room for more and new understanding about how to do it, new, new strategies. I also do neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah. Um, but there's, I call it great brain, like mind hacks, um, to go in emotionally and have emotional strategies to actually, um, it's, it's, there's too many and too, too long of conversations to, to go into specifically right now. But in the book, and, and right now I can give you an overview of an idea of how to do it. Uh, in fact, do you want me to do that right now just to kind of give a little overview? Yeah, go for it. I mean, I, I think that we probably need to to close that loop. I think people listening would be like, okay, well, how do we have this? How do we yeah. have the stronger conversations then that kind of 
beat logic because some people are like oh well maybe evidence is enough or maybe logic is enough and because of the conversation we've had so far is that's not always the case so how can we either shortcut that or how can we actually use emotion in a more a more beneficial way right so um let me think about how to set that up um and i don't tell me give me a time what how are we on time we're all right yeah yeah we've probably got about 15 minutes Okay. So I'm going to, I talk about it in the book and I'll just give a little story here about to set up the premise. Um, I told you I was born in church. I was raised in church, basically a Christian background and, and upbringing. My parents were ministers, my ancestor, parents, grandparents. I, it wasn't, I was the first one at church and the last one to leave. Like that's the kind of church experience I grew up in. Of course we're singing and blah, blah, blah. So I knew cerebrally all my life and I probably had some, I know I had emotional experiences regarding like God and, um, you know, like singing always is a, it, it taps into emotions, you know, whether you're listening or doing it, singing is a very emotional experience. So I know I had some emotional experiences with what I thought of as God. I don't want to trigger anybody or hook anybody about, this isn't a religious conversation, but it's like, this higher entity or a spiritual power or something like that. I called it something back in my background, but it doesn't matter what you call it in my opinion right now. But, um, but I was going through my husband, we have four boys and the youngest of our sons were really middle schoolish age and really going through a hard, hard, hard time Um, was struggling with some depression and some um, physical abuse of himself. And I'd never experienced any of that kind of stuff. And it was really pushing my fear. My fear brain was going crazy about, oh, how do I help this? And what do we do? And he's, oh, it's dark, dark energy in the house at the time. And, and, um, and at this point in my life, I was reading a lot of Wayne Dyer. And one of the Wayne Dyer quotes that struck me in this situation was, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And, you know, you can apply that to so many situations. Well, that struck me about this situation that we were going through with our son. And so I talked to my husband and I said, you know what, let's, let's change the way we look at him. Because when I grew up, prayer was really fear-based. It was a lot of like, oh God, please help. Da, da, da. Oh no. <laughs> you know, like yeah. heal, heal somebody because they're sick and dying or help these people because they're so screwed up or something. It, you know, it was a lot of fear-based emotion, right? Emotional meditation, basically. And I believe thought has energy. So unknowingly, there's a lot of people who are well-meaning, but we're sending a lot of anti-faith, you know, uh, energy towards situations that anyway, that's a whole other subject. So this son was going through this and I said, let's change the way we look at him. And Michael, I started in my quiet time every day. I went to a place where I envisioned him in my mind's eye and I wanted, and I got to an emotional place of how I wanted him to feel, but I felt it. I felt it as if almost like a little bit like by proxy in a way, like in my mind's eye, I held him in his, where his face, I can see it right now. You don't know what he looks like, but it comes right now to my mind this image that I held of him every single day when I'd have my quiet time and his face was radiantly beaming smiley. This was not a smiley kid at all. And at the time, reality wise outwardly, but I wanted to see him as I wanted him to feel. So I started seeing that in my mind's eye and I put a beaming 
I call it radiant look on his face and he looked heavenward and his arms were stretched straight out to upward and his face had a light on it beaming. And my thought when I had that, that image was he feels unconditionally loved. That was my greatest desire is for him to know how unconditionally loved he was. He didn't need to do anything. He didn't need to stop doing this or that or be better here or be a better Christian. None of that. He just needed to feel. So in my mind's eye, I gave that, I put that picture with, and those accompanying emotions inside me of him, like euphorically feeling unconditionally loved. And as a mom, I mean, I get a little bit choked up even now because that's all I wanted for him. I just wanted him to know and feel, not know cerebrally, but feel unconditionally loved. So that was an emotional experience for me about him, right? Mm -hmm. well, yeah. And over on the side, a side note, things started changing for him. In fact, uh, within, I don't remember, someone asked me, I tried to remember the time frame, but I bet you it was within six months, just to put it, uh, an end cap on that story. I bet you within six months, he was in high school choir and they went on a choir retreat to the, we lived in Tennessee at the time, and he lit, was at the Gatlinburg Smoky Mountains. He was out in a cabin on a deck. Now, remember, I was just doing this every day. My husband put a screensaver on his computer of him when he was a happy time of his childhood, and we just started seeing him happy, feeling loved, feeling it emotionally and on our part. And I'd kind of just let that go. Things were looking, feeling better at home. But the day came when I was scrolling Facebook one day while he was gone at this retreat over a weekend. And I swear to God, he was out. The scroll, this picture came on my Facebook of him. One of his friends was a photographer, took a picture of him out on a deck overlooking the Smoky Mountains at this cabin they were in. His hands were straight up in the air. His face was beaming, smiling, light on it, just like I had. Like I could tell you the color of his shirt. It was exactly. <laughs> Exactly. It was exactly this picture that I had held in my mind with emotion of him. I mean, I just like bawled like a baby, like, oh my gosh, thank you. But what happened even before I saw that picture, when I started doing this for him, I thought, you know what? What about me? What about me? So this goes to the question about rewiring from an emotional standpoint. Mm -hmm. So when I felt what was happening, that I could get to this emotional place for him. And as a mom, that's easy to do. And even dads, I hate to say, leave dads out of the picture, but I'm not a dad, so it's hard for me to speak directly. But as a, par <laughs> as a parent, yeah. you know, you're going to inherently love your children. So it was easier for me to get to that place for him. But then I thought, you know what? What about me? And honestly, as soon as I got quiet, now this is what I want this is what I kind of want to kind of lead a little bit with your listeners right now is um, um, if everybody could just kind of like right now, if you want to just play with me a minute and close your eyes and find like the deepest, deepest part of your breath. Like if you're t like your belly, the deep part of your belly should extend. And then exhale it. That is where you want to learn and retrain your body physiologically to breathe. When the breath is the doorway to this, what I'm talking about, this emotional place. Because your survival brain settles down. 
Like seriously, brain science says, if you can breathe and bring in oxygen from that deepest part of you, the survival brain settles down and you now have better logical access to rewiring it. Let's put it that way. It's still going to be an emotional experience, but you can reach it better. So let's just do this with me. Just on the inhale, in your mind, don't say it out loud. I might just to guide it, but in your mind, on that deepest inhale, say the words, I, in your mind, I am, while you're just breathing in deeply. Hold it for a little bit. And then on the exhale, say, I said the word loved. Doesn't have to be right. You can say the word worthy. You could say the word perfect. You can say the word smart. Whatever word, it's really self-directed. It's the deeper you that is going to kind of direct this process. So just do a few breaths like that just while we calm down a little bit and kind of feel what I'm talking about. I am loved. If you can come up with a picture inside yourself, in fact, this really helps people. If you can think of a picture of you as a baby or a toddler, anywhere in there, any age really of your younger self, if a picture that you've seen of yourself, you might not even have a conscious memory of that period of your life. If you can just see a picture in your mind's eye of what you've seen from a scrapbook and you can, you can actually breathe in to that child that's you, love. You are loved. It's stronger. However you can get there. And how you know you've gotten there is when there's an emotional response. I don't think we can probably do it for everybody in a, you know, five minutes left in the podcast, but that is one of the processes that I teach to do. I talk a little bit about it in the book. My work is all about having people rewire. I lead people through live events through some of these things, um, through some of my um, coaching and then my coach programs, my retreats, because that's where the work is really done. It can't be, you can't cerebrally rewire this. Does that make sense? Yes. I quite like the way that you, you guided us through that, Kim. I appreciate that. If people wanted to, to find out more about you and what you've got going on, this is your chance to share like your, your social media or your website links and all those sorts of things. Okay. Well, the name is, my name is Kim Fisk, F-I-S-K-E. So just kimfisk.com. That's probably the best way to find me in terms of stay connected with where I'm going to be maybe speaking, my, co my coaching programs, my retreats. I've got a retreat coming up in Mexico the end of uh, January to early February, but that's a very limited number. So there's just stuff like I'm still trying to unpack everything I'm going to be doing. So if you just want to know what I'm going to end up doing someday, I don't even know what I'm going to do yet. Just go to kimfisk.com <laughs> and sign up. You know, really, that's how my life is, really. I just kind of go with the flow. And then, um, but my book, you can find the book there at my website. You can also find me, Kim Fisk, on Facebook, business, business page. There's a business page and a personal page. I don't know how many more people I can be friends with on personal page, but business page is fine. LinkedIn is Kim Fisk. Uh, Instagram is Kim Fisk. Um, 
I don't know. You shouldn't have really any trouble finding me. I'm pretty, pretty out there. All right. I'd love cool. to, I'd love to connect and I'd love feedback. So if this has given you something, if you feel, you know, I'm very right now because of the newness of the book and this specific work, like I've done the work in various forms over the years, you know, as I've developed these um, principles and understood them and in my coaching business, but this specific work is relatively new with this languaging, with this, with some of my new updated NLP tools and things like that. I would love feedback. So data gathering is my mission. I love, don't ever, I love to hear from people I'm helping or people who are snagged. I even want to hear if I made you mad. I'd love to hear that. Like, I'd love to hear everything. So, yeah. All right, cool. Well, we've got one, one last question for you, Kim. And I ask everyone this, all of my guests this. So if you've ever listened to the show, then you will know what that question is. Those of you that are new to the show, make sure you do subscribe so that you don't miss any of our future guests. And our last question is, Kim, so brace yourself. Okay. It is, <laughs> what would you like the world to know about you that it doesn't already know? And before you process that, we've had funny answers to serious answers to answers that have no no bearing on anything that we've spoken about, all right? But what would you like the world to know about you that it doesn't already know? I think it would surprise most people that actually do know me, or if you've just heard me for the first time here, is that the, uh, a majority, I don't know what percentage I'd put on it, the majority of the time, I, I hear the voice that says, you're a phony, you're not good enough it's still the old wiring that echoes. And I think majority of people that, that know me, that, that surprises them because they think I'm just this, they, they think I have some secret sauce that they don't have. And, um, and yeah, so it's not, yeah, that's what, I, that's what I think people don't know is that, yeah, I hear it, but I, now I know what to do with it. Now I know what it really is. And, and sometimes it gets me though. Michael, sometimes I'm yeah. a, I'm in the fetal position in the corner, you know, like, yeah. you know, rocking or I'm in my bed with covers over my head because it gets me sometimes. And then I have to just get quiet again. It's a, it's, it's never ending evolution. If I want to grow, if I want to become more, if I want to contribute more, I'm going to have that voice with me forever and it's okay. Well, Kim, that's a, a very, very good way to finish. Again, I appreciate you coming on. Those of you that are listening, make sure you share this one out. Kim takes us through a breathing slash meditation practice. We go through three of her monster principles based on the Monster Under the Bed book. And Kim, share the subtitle again for us. Uncovering the Lie That Drives Us good stuff all right kim thanks for being a guest on the show i appreciate thanks, it Michael. Absolutely. and i'm sure i'm sure we'll keep in touch okay thank you